To look at politics post-COVID-19 and how a global pandemic might affect the culture wars, the rise of populism, the rejection of big government and experts, I'm joined by two of the best political analysts on the planet. John McTurnan, Senior Advisor at BCW Global, highly regarded strategist and political commentator, former offsider to Tony Blair, Julia Gillard, even Scottish Labour Party leader Jim Murphy and also Marcus Roberts, who's Director of International Projects at the UK polling company YouGov. And he previously worked for the Labour Party in the UK, the Democratic Party in the US, as well as numerous think tanks and campaign groups across Europe and America. And I'm Josie Pagani, political commentator in New Zealand and the head of Progress New Zealand. Now, just a quick disclaimer, we had a few sound problems on this podcast. I apologise for the bad quality at times, but persevere. I tell you, the content is so worth it. John, I'm thinking of something I've heard you say, which is that the words, we're from government and we're here to help, are no longer a trigger that makes you run for the hills. Government is back. Experts are back. Does this mean that the culture wars are over? given that the culture wars were so much a rejection of the experts from Brussels or the establishment uh, telling you what to do and what to think and what cars to drive and what to eat. Are the culture wars over because of COVID-19? No, everything has changed, but nothing has changed. Uh, by which I mean that all political terms uh, and all political positions are still going to be contested. It's just that the environment in which we operate is back. So, yeah, governments are back. But the question is on what terms uh, experts are back but the question is on what on what terms because we're seeing already um very different policies adopted by governments who all have access to the same science who all claim to be led by the science um and so we're back where we where we were before as progressives which is what matters is the combination of purpose as in where do we want to take our countries to, our sites to, our communities to, our economies to, our institutions to, and values. What kind of people are we? What kind of values do we body forth in our actions, in our words? And what kind of values do we want to see built into whatever becomes the new normal? So if I if I think about um, Paul Collier and he wrote about you know the sort of the 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 hard left if you like or the the sort of radical centre that those six values that drive the way that voters vote and the way that people uh, respond to their politicians loyalty fairness liberty hierarchy care and sanctity I think. The left usually does really, really well on fairness and care and not so well on patriotism, loyalty, hierarchy, sanctity, faith, so on. Uh, when you talk about values then, John, so Marcus, maybe coming to you, what are those values going to be represented in the post-COVID-19 world? Like, are they still as strong as ever for voters? Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, like in, in, in simple terms, it's the old clash between um, the left's belief in fairness and the right's um, belief in uh, responsibility. The way the left um, traditionally looks to every answer to the state, the right to the market. And what, of course, gets squeezed out in, in the middle of all of this is community. Um, and I think John makes a good point about how everything has changed and yet nothing has changed. When uh, the left looks at the COVID crisis, 
there is a, it, I, I see a lot of the same temptations and same, to be blunt, lazy analysis that the left looked at the 2008 crash with. Oh, this is our moment. This proves that state returns. This proves that the um, uh, that we need a rational governmental um, uh, evidence-led uh, response. Um, public spending uh, should increase, uh, and now the people will turn to us. And and yet, as we well remember, it is a very rare instance in which there is any kind of crisis in which voters actually turn to the left. Uh, the left in America benefited enormously from the fact that it was not in power and responsible when the crash happened, and that was a huge point in the Democrats' victory of 2008 under Barack Obama. Um, meanwhile, the left uh, across Europe, where it was in government, got blamed for it. Um, uh, I think similarly, though, uh, or rather differently, I should say, there is a real danger for the left in this crisis that it thinks um, that because uh, it is so full of high education, high information, high income voters who love the science of COVID, or at least the faux Twitter science of COVID, uh, <laughs> that it will have the chance to make an argument um, that will be well received by the public as to how we are all terribly clever and everyone should listen to us. And guess what? Voters don't like being told that there are a bunch of cleverer people than them telling them what to do. Right now, some of the best response for COVID is coming from communities, coming from people doing sensible things in their own homes and families to protect one another. Back to your sanctity and values points from, from uh, earlier, Josie. Um, that's not about um, the same turf as the left, imagining we'll now get a bunch of scientists to tell us we can do more public spending for public health and science and the like. It's a different kind of politics that I think is taking hold and the left needs to tread carefully as a consequence. So we haven't suddenly gone back, it's not back to the future to the 70s and Jeremy Corbyn hasn't won the argument. It's, it, the, the, as you say, nothing's changed really. It's still, uh, we're still suspicious of, of, of people telling us how to live our lives. So. So then my question is, why is it that we have all of us in New Zealand, Britain, uh, elsewhere, right across Europe, we've been so willing to just fall in behind uh, the eradication of 300 years of checks and balances on democratic processes? And, and for the right reasons, we're locked down, we've, we're, the police are telling us where we go, who we mix with, what we do, but it's, aren't you slightly alarmed with how easy it is to get us all to fall into line with basically just going, yeah, we're happy to park 300 years of, of democratic process. I think I'd, I think I'd challenge the assumption behind that question. Um, one of the most striking things is how, you know, a crisis reveals and it reveals fundamentals. It reveals the real fundamental values uh, that leaders hold. It reveals, um, Fundamentally, whether you've got the capability, the character to address the, the challenges that you have. And what was what's most interesting in the UK is you could have been quoted there from Boris Johnson. It's clear that when Boris Johnson closed down the pubs in, in Britain, he defined going to the pub as one of the liberties of freeborn Britons. Now, I like the pub as much as anyone. But it is not like, uh, you know, property rights or free speech. It's not a fundamental liberty. Um, 
what is really interesting in the agonizing that government had internally in the UK was would people um, would people in Britain do what government said? The truth is, I said this to, to public service leaders before the lockdown, um, British people like to be told what to do. And do you know what? We did like to be told what to do. We reserved the right to be critical and the government are quite angry that we've been locked down as a country, but journalists are asking questions about their brilliant plans. So that bit of democracy is working. And I think the, the, the issue, in one sense, why there's a, a, a thing that progressives can look to is this is for the first time for a very long time that we are in a truly collective experience because the risk is to each and every one of us. And while there are huge questions about why uh, more BAME, more black and minority ethnic uh, citizens and uh, health service workers seem to be dying from COVID, and there's huge issues about um, class and access to uh, space in your own home if you're locked down and all of the things. The truth is this, is a, this, this disease is a great equalizer. Uh, and in that sense, people are acting collectively because we don't know whether it could be us or our family who get it. So, so do you think then, John, that 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 people are feeling almost like we're in a kind of uh, post World War Two environment where we need a Marshall Plan or we need a big New Deal where that sense of co collectivity will continue, or will we get to a point where we go? To the you know to Winston Churchill, thank you for winning the war, and then we go and vote for Clement Attlee because he represents the future, and you know all those leaders who are doing incredibly well in the polls because we're we're liking the fact that they're being tough, slightly autocratic, and you know telling us to stay at home. We're not necessarily going to vote for them in upcoming elections. We might vote for someone else. I mean, what kind of leaders are we going to want in COVID nineteen? strong leaders who 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 are, are favoring strong state so polling wise uh trust in doctors in nurses um in scientists uh is up um uh, a decent amount for the latest yougov tracker science um but i think the, that we have to be very careful of seeing in this crisis uh, a direct uh prophecy for the future um, because, as John was noting earlier, uh, how voters respond to um, uh, the situation of, of, of a de facto existential threat um, is going to be very different to how voters respond um, in the aftermath. It's one thing for people to say, I'm not going to the pub whilst there's a threat of me becoming a carrier or, or suffering from um, COVID-19 myself. Um, uh, it's another thing uh, for that to automatically equate to a rise in social solidarity after the crisis. It's entirely possible that actually the, the reverse takes um, effect and that after this, um, the, the long-term social consequences of individual atomization, and particularly I'm thinking of the amount of time we're spending in social isolation, the amount of time we're spending online, um, the uh, omnipresence of uh, virtual meetings, um, Netflix, uh, Disney Plus, uh, Amazon Prime, and the like in our lives. 
uh, could lead to quite a dark series of political outcomes, not necessarily just a positive series. And that's why it's so important for the left to begin shaping that politics that it wants now, rather than expecting it to arise as a, automatically as a consequence of this crisis. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This is actually our opportunity to define a kind of progressive vision of what the post-COVID world looks like. And John, I mean, you've said before, just because we're, we're, we like government now and we, we're, we're okay with listening to experts doesn't mean that, that Jeremy Corbyn was right and suddenly we want to nationalise the means of production. Yeah, look, I think um, there's a danger uh, that everybody sees the crisis as a mirror. It reflects them and it reflects the views they've had and their solution for the world, yes. whether it's UBI or whatever it is, is absolutely the one. Um, and this tr the truth is, a crisis is a lamp. It shines a, a deep, sharp light into every area and finds and finds faults and flaws as well as strengths uh, and heroism. And we're seeing that in the UK. Uh, we're seeing it actually in most countries in the elder care sector, the social care sector. So I think that the issue is still, you know, I believe that it, as we come out of this crisis, that the issues remain the same. We don't want a bigger state, but we do want a better state. That is the challenge for people who think sloppily on the left, that because you have to spend hard in a Keynesian way to, 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 to face up to a crisis, economic crisis of this level, it means that you can spend hard perpetually. Um, people who claim that's Keynesian have never read Keynes. Keynes was for um, you know, sp spending on the way down um, and retrenchment on the way on the way up and the way out. We still will have to make choices. The fact that governments have to print money at the moment doesn't mean we can and should print money for the next. You know, we're doing it for the next ten months. We shouldn't do it for the next decade. Comes back again. You know, to govern is to choose. Um, the religion of politics is priorities. So what is it that we, as we look around us, a crisis is doing two things at the same time. A crisis accelerates. It accelerates destruction uh, and accelerates innovation. So we're seeing crises brought to, brought to fruition uh, that might have taken 10, 10 years to see through. In Britain, uh, the high street will never look the same. We cannot restore the high street to what it was, we knew it was changing, we knew it was going. Businesses are trading uh, insolvent now, they won't ever come back. Uh, but in the same way, we see rapid innovation. In, uh, I know one of the companies who are trying to make ventilators. Um, what they're doing is using, it's a, it's a, it's a consortium with Rolls-Royce, with British Aerospace, with some, uh, some medics uh, and some advanced um, clinicians. They want ventilator that can be made with existing technology or existing parts with no new IP that can be made dollars a ventilator why because they see the crisis coming to sub-saharan Africa and they want something that yeah. can be made to structure to that so we come back to these big questions the, the debate between globalization and nationalism will still structure our politics and the question is what is the best way to tackle COVID? Because closing your you know, a, a virus doesn't know borders, but clearly closing your borders can have some impact on control. Um, so 
do you require a national solution or does a global crisis require a global solution? And as progressed as one of our issues is, we have to get into the difficult task of modernizing multilateral organizations. Um, we may think the World Health Organization has opened. Um, the WTO is still stuck in the Doha round. Who knows when that started and who really believes that's on anything apart from life support? So refreshing, renewing those global institutions and having China as a participant and a partner is the challenge of the next decades. It's the same questions. Um, what we can't believe is that everything that was difficult um, at the end of last year has been made easy for us by this by this crisis. The one challenge, so, the, 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 the challenges are deep. So, so when, that's exactly right. So, so if you look at the WTO uh, uh, and and the rules based trade system, uh, I mean, it was massively under threat. It, I've heard you say too, John, that you know, there's ten years of change being compressed into one year. So, is it likely? Do you think that take the WTO for example? International trade rules of rules of um, trade internationally are they likely to uh, um, I don't know progress post COVID nineteen or are we likely to go no no we're going to buy local we're going to buy British made New Zealand made American made and um, to hell with international trade supply routes and so on what how's it going to play out I I think the um the demand for sovereign capability will be strong, but it will be mainly articulated by rent-seeking industries um, because trade reduces costs and it reduces costs which are charged to working people and their families. Uh, we, have quite, we have to hold firm on this one. The notion that every country should be able to make everything it needs to consume is in the end like Green's uh, agenda. It's a license for making everybody a little well off, a little less well off. Um, as progressives, we've always wanted to balance growth and quality, and now growth, equality, and the environment. We don't want uh, to save the environment by saying, for example, do you know what? Uh, global growth got to a point where we just need to stop now. We need to stop. We stop. We need to stop integrating African countries into the global economy. I'm sorry the music has stopped, but the parcel of poverty is waiting, with, it's, gonna, it, it's in your arms, you're going to have to keep it. So I think, you know, we, we, we have to reflect as well on the fact that we have all benefited, particularly, um, you know, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, uh, island nations, uh, trading nations. Um, a world that turns its back on trade is a world that turns its back on our countries, uh, but it also turns its back on a lot of other countries. So, the, so the in the new normal, which which will have elements of, of today, have elements of the past, and one wants elements of the future. One of the pivot points of that will be COP twenty six in um, in Glasgow next year, getting the right balance of environmental action and growth and stimulation to the stimulus the economy and money going to the hardest hit uh, by the crisis you know so maybe what we need is 
um, a Green New Deal as it would have been done by Roosevelt, not a Green New Deal as it is proposed by people who think it's a backdoor way to get a socialist economy. So there's all, there's all kinds of ways we have to rethink uh, the agenda that's around and understand it takes a very long time for the public to change their view, even in a crisis, about what is next. There was a lot of during the Second World War about what the education system in Britain should be like coming out, what the welfare system should be like coming out, what housing, what town and country planning. There's an element of thinking. There's no time for thinking in a crisis, but that's the most precious thing that can be done by progressives at the moment. Marcus, do you think the multilateral systems, the UN, the WHO, the WTO, uh, even the EU, ha have they been sort of lost in action? Or, or is this an opportunity now to, to rapidly reform them where there were so many barriers to reform because these are big fat bureaucracies? But is there an opportunity now, given the, the, the swiftness of change under COVID-19, to just... Uh, reform these organisations so they do exactly what John just said there, they actually start to respond uh, more rapidly and to real need. Sadly, I think there's a necessity to reform them. I don't think there is that good an opportunity to reform them given who's in the White House, who's in number 10, um, Britain leaving the European Union um, and, and all the rest. Uh, I'm, I'm actually quite worried about some of the trend lines coming out of this crisis, uh, particularly if we think of it as a great accelerator for some of the worst negative excesses of globalization. Um, if we think of who the winners of this crisis are going to be uh, within the private sector, it's going to be the tech giants. It's going to be Google, it's going to be Amazon Web Services, it's going to be Amazon Delivery, it's going to be Netflix and Disney streaming channels, um, it's going to be anyone who is a, has been able to take their work um, uh, online and out of the, the real world of bricks and mortars. And what does that mean in terms of the losers? Um, it means the losers are going to be our high streets, our main streets, um, the bastions of our community. Um, how are we going to sustain local shops? We're all familiar with broken window syndrome. We know how dangerous it is to neighborhoods once they go into decline and what the, what, the, what the spiral of decline can be for a community when it has its local commercial heart um, ripped out of it. And if the consequence of COVID is that we do all of our shopping online now, we live more of our social life online, and uh, uh, the, the tech giants and those who have developed their own independent procurement, distribution, logistics, supply chains, are the ones who are able to thrive commercially even within the real retail space, particularly of Amazon here, of course, then that is going to be a problem, not just for the left, but for our society at large. So you think inequality may actually get worse post-COVID-19, even though we might be dreaming of this new collective spirit that we've all got post-war? Post you think inequality will, will actually accelerate? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and if we look more internationally to get back at why it's so desperately needed that we reform our, our international multilateral institutions or organizations, um, let's consider what the consequences for COVID in Africa will be. Um, uh, it is highly unlikely that the U.S. under um, the Trump administration 
or the European Union um, as politically internally divided um, as it is at present is going to be able to respond to the consequences of COVID-19 in Africa with anything near the scale of a Marshall Plan effort that it is likely to require. But who is going to do that? Well, we've already seen the earliest signs that China is very interested in making any kind of aid and support, either medical or economic, um, uh, to any number of countries across the continent. So let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the politicians and um, what what we're seeing in terms of the kind of report card of how different politicians are responding. So we're seeing a nearly universal rally effect around the flag, aren't we? I mean, leaders, whether it's Merkel's approval rating, she's gone up 11%. Uh, Macron's has gone up 14%. Even Boris Johnson's gone up 13%. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, um, has Labour Party has, for the first time, really jumped ahead of the National Party. Justin Trudeau's approval has risen 21%. Even Scott Morrison is up 18%. So, is this likely to translate, do you think, into election results for incumbents? So I'm thinking America, New Zealand, uh, countries that have got elections coming up this year. Yeah, I'd probably break it into three categories. Countries that are doing, um, uh, where the governments are doing, what considers to be doing well after the crisis, um, where the uh, situation is more of a mixed picture and where there's clear failure as well. And what's interesting is that that doesn't fall into all of the categories that you might expect uh, in terms of the countries and their governmental response. For example, um, if I look at the latest YouGov COVID tracker on all of this, um, I'm not surprised to see the government approval of the handling of the COVID crisis in Spain is way down at 38%. Um, I'm not surprised at all um, to see that um, Modi's handling uh, in terms of the Indian government um, is way up high, although 92% is very high indeed. But what is interesting is where there are differences. Um, so so for, uh, in the US, for example, um, we have an approval rating of the government in COVID of just 49%. What that says to me is that the politics of COVID in the US are yet to have any effect beyond that of basic normal partisanship at present. Um, American voters are viewing um, uh, the COVID crisis through the same prism that they view everything else with regard to pro or anti-Trump. Um, in the UK, uh, there's more of a rallying around the flag effect. The UK government enjoying a 66% um, support rating. Uh, and as you noted earlier, jo Josie, even Scott Morrison in Australia have seen a boost in their numbers. And that's, because, that's underpinned, I think, by the fact that the Australian government enjoys an 86% approval rating of its governmental handling of the crisis. Uh, what does that mean for what comes next? Well, I think the 1945 precedent is, uh, in the UK in terms of Churchill being sacked and Attlee being hired is one that the left might sincerely hope for, but I don't think yeah. there's any guarantee of that. Uh, it might even be, though, that the closer the election is to the current crisis and that rallying around the flag effect we're seeing, um, the better the government is able to immediately um, benefit from that uh, purpose. And we might get some early indications of that in a very um, short while with the Polish elections and the snap general election in Poland currently being held. 
uh, in terms of a, a better performance for the government that might have been the case uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, as for what happens to, to um, uh, politicians and governments, incumbents and oppositions on more normal electoral cycles that stretch beyond the year 2020, uh, I, I imagine that everything in this age of hyper-fast politics is so speeding up that probably politics will be on to something else by then, <laughs> ordinary or tragic as that may sound. Yeah. What, what do you think, John? I mean, are you, are you seeing the emergence of a desire from voters for strong leaders or for empathetic leaders, compassionate leaders, the Jacinda Ardern model? What, what are you seeing in terms of voter responses to the way that leaders are, uh, are responding to COVID? Uh, look, I think like Marcus, I'd divide this into um, really three, uh, three kind of three, three kind of types uh, of leader and types of political response, but not necessarily the same way, same way as him. I think there's there's an extent to which um, this uh, re reveals the leaders who actually believe in government and those who don't believe in government. And the, it's been interesting that the sort of the axis of Anglo-American capitalism, which does include Dutch capitalism, um, that it's been, you know, it's been Rutte in the Netherlands, it's been Trump uh, in the US and um, uh, Johnson in the UK, who've been the most reluctant to use uh, the power of government to make us do things, you know, the, it was is Weber who says that the kind of foundation of government is having a monopoly on the legitimate, legitimate use of violence. I mean, governments actually can make people do things if they want to, but the sort of the the world's divided partly between those you know who are for using um, government and those who aren't. I think those who've been willing to embrace government are getting a good response for that um, by and large, and I think that that is true of um, of Scott Morrison. He's a conservative who actually does believe uh, believe in government. It's true of Jacinda. The different styles of leadership will have an impact, and I think uh, you can see how hard it is for the opposition to get any hearing uh, in a crisis. Because what is the point of criticism during this? But I think the 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 the, 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 the third category, and which we're not sure about yet, which is why I think this will be more open as we move into beyond you know, into 2021 and 2022 and away from the immediate impact of the crisis the the fundamentals of politics are at a certain level always about the economy so you've got those who you've got those who ref really were reluctant to use the government there were the, uh, to stop the health crisis there were those who embraced that and the third group of which is the question mark sits is who will use the powers of government best to bring back the economy? And to, 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 to try to uh, bring that to life, I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a forgotten group of people, which are actually quite large in New Zealand, Australia, uh, at the UK, which is people who run their own businesses, who pay themselves dividends from uh, their businesses, who employ their small businesses, but they employ a reasonable number of people in the local community, um, those people are the ones who are being hit in a way the hardest by all of the structures that have been brought up in Australia, where I know, and the UK, where I know, 
Um, they essentially, they're told you can go and claim uh, and get £92 a week. So you who used to run the building company, you're now getting the same amount of money as the people who used to work in your company. Um, that, you know, it is, it is the new middle class, the tradies, um, the ones on, 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 on which the Thatcher uh, government, the Liberal victories uh, under John Howard were built uh, in Australia. And the central part of the Conservative coalition are going unrecognised, unfunded, trading insolvent. Um, Margaret Thatcher would have had a policy for um, small companies. Um, it's not seemed to be at the front of the thinking. And so I think that the political constituencies will come back into play. Um, the other element of this is the, the forcing of governments to focus on um, growth at all costs leads to two challenges which are, which are, which are really hard for them. Our, our Conservative government under Boris Johnson had wanted to even out regional inequalities in, in economics. They will not be able to do that. They called it a leveling up agenda to level all areas up to the prosperity of London and the southeast. We'll be in a desperate, desperate rush not to level down the economy um, to the same to the to, to 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 the lowest common denominator. And that 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 will be one fracturing in the new coalition that's been emerging in the UK. The second one will be growth at all costs could well be um, brown growth, not green growth, uh, because there's no there's no evidence. Uh, that you can get fast growth through green growth. The green agenda has always been a slow, slow building and a slow construction agenda. So that that's another tension because we know that successful conservative parties in Europe and in uh, and the and, and the and in, in the English speaking world have managed I mean, outside America, of course, have managed to reach uh, to people who believe. Uh, environmental policies, conservation, they've emphasized that, you know, the word conservation has conservative in it, same root as conservative and conservative party in politics. That's another fact. So it's there, there are going to be a lot of moving parts in the politics, which is why it's all up for grabs. And there's another big test coming, which is the test of how you do the economy. And just as with the COVID test, the COVID test is in real time, real world, how many how successful is your strategy at saving lives and the economic one will be a real world real-time test how successful are you at getting us back to work you see i wonder if we're starting to segue from i'm not dead no one i love is dead or, or uh, we're not sick so uh, thank you for saving my life. Now I'm really pissed off that I've lost my job. And so it's interesting in New Zealand where uh, suddenly the government has stopped talking about things like the well-being budget. Uh, and, they've, and everybody started talking about GDP again. You know, New Zealand might lose 30% GDP as a result of COVID-19. We might have up to 20% unemployment. So suddenly you read, oh, turns out GDP was quite important. Um, and I wonder if, uh, while we're feeling really grateful to governments now that they've done a tough lockdown, that, that uh, we're, we're alive and we're healthy. But you're right. I mean, at some point we're going to say, at what cost? You know, what we could all drive three kilometres an hour down the road and we would save 40,000 lives in the US in one year. But we don't do that because 
you know, we wouldn't get anywhere and we wouldn't do anything and our quality of life would be massively impacted. I wonder if that kind of cost benefit started to, is starting to hit in and people will start to go, actually, maybe the lockdown was a bit tough. What do you think, Marcus, in the, in the, if you're a tradie with a ladder on your van, are you starting to feel like the cost was a little bit more than you expected? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point, Josie. Uh, and I think it speaks to um, uh, the priorities that, that all governments will face and the necessity to the left to make a different kind of argument about what um, recovery looks like and how recovery is balanced. Um, I think there's probably three components to a good recovery in this. Um, one is, uh, at the smallest level, um, a local component that's led by individuals, families, citizens, communities, um, around buy local efforts, around shop local, around campaigns that uh, re-emphasize um, uh, uh, high streets and main street buying um, and local support. Uh, and I don't think we should underestimate the importance of, of that kind of social politics or of our comms around that. The second thing um, we should look at um, at the other end of the communitarian Fabian axis, if you will, um, is, is quite a strong red response in terms of a recovery tax. Uh, and I think that there, there's, there's a strong argument here, although it'd be interesting to poll this next, as to the attractiveness of taxing the winners from all of this, taxing the tech giants, taxing Amazon, um, using that as an opportunity uh, to go after some of the um, unfairnesses in the system by which uh, these mega companies are able to get out of their responsibility with regard to tax and putting that money towards closing the debt and deficit problem that the COVID crisis response is going to cause. And then the third problem, or rather part of the, the, the solution to the problem, may be a degree of debt forgiveness that we have previously not ever been able to imagine. Um, and and there's some, the beginnings of some interesting thinking around this. And it comes from the point that you made just now, Josie, that if indeed a country is developed and as strong as New Zealand, it's going to lose nearly a third of its GDP in the matter of a mere half year. At what point is the economic cost of this so extraordinary as to simply be unsustainable in real normal economic terms? Um, uh, Imagine if the cost of this to a country's exchequer was, was several hundred um, uh, billion dollars. Um, and then we, that country has to repay that amount over a period of time. But another uh, COVID or pandemic type crisis arose within a couple of years. At what point would we discover that we had gone bankrupt in terms of social democracy and an inability to practice any kind of public spending-led social democracy because we could no longer afford to practice any public spending at all as all we were doing was paying back debt. That's the context in which we need to decide whether or not it really is our intention to pay back all of the sums um, that we have consumed as governments and states in order to pay for this response or whether a measure of this will simply have to be managed away. Yeah, John, what, do you, what, what would be your top three uh, policy responses for recovery? Look, I think uh, to connect to what Marcus has just said, um, there, there is no doubt that we're going through a lot of shadow boxing at the moment. 
um, and the pretense that, that what's been given to businesses are grants. They're not grants. Uh, they are going to be, uh, yeah. they're not loans. Yes. They, they're, they're not loans. Uh, they have to become grants. They have to be, they have to be written yeah, off. And I think, I think once you, once you start to realize that a lot of this spending is just spending, it should free the very clever people in our treasuries to perform judo on themselves. By which I mean, we've got the cleverest civil servants in our systems all work in treasury. And the only thing they ever want to do is stop ministers spending money. And that is good because by and large, ministers have a lot of stupid ideas to spend money on. Uh, and by and large, um, you know, whatever you do, do nothing. It's really good advice for governments because it's really hard to do the right thing. Um, we're now in a situation where we need to reverse that and whatever you do, do anything. Try it. So that'd be my second thing. One is, one is debt forgiveness, loans, in, loans into grants, write it off, write off individual people's debts, write off uh, the, the tuition fees debts that are accumulated for students. Right, just write debt off. Um, write off the debt of highly indebted countries uh, in Africa. Um, all of those issues, we, in Britain, all of the accumulated debts, 15 billion uh, pounds worth of debts of our hospitals and the hospital system were wiped off on the first things that the action being a treasury. So if you look closely, you see some of the things happening already that, 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 that are going to happen. Um, the second thing I think is uh, government needs to take a brutal look at the future and have a, have a sectoral response. So British, American uh, and Australian universities um, are massively exposed to the collapse of foreign students uh, being willing to travel and learn. Um, yeah, as is, as as is New Zealand. Too, so yeah. not a sector I know as well. So we've got four, the, four, the four sects in the Anglosphere, the, the four countries in the Anglosphere, Australia, New Zealand, um, Australia, uh, uh, sorry, the four countries in the Anglosphere, Australia, New Zealand, America, uh, and the UK. We all have exposed university sectors, exposed massively to uh, to, to a collapse in foreign students coming. Now, that is bad because it's a, an important part of our soft diplomacy. Uh, that is bad because it's actually a really important part of our industrial strategy and has been for the last couple of decades a really successful one. It's not just that you're selling education as a traded good internationally, you're actually bringing some of the best and the brightest into your country. And then the ones who click uh, academically in research terms, socially, they stay, they generate wealth. Others who click socially, academically in research terms, stay for a bit, then go back and they create a strong relationship between uh, the country they came from and, and, and the one in which they enjoyed their education. A collapse, higher education policy has been a, one of the most successful industrial strategies uh, in New Zealand, Australia uh, uh, and, and, and the UK. That sector now has to be supported but support to the new normal. So it requires Treasury not to say you don't need money, because they do. Uh, you don't need money to sustain yourselves in your current model, which is probably true. You need money to help yourselves get from here to there. And I think the understanding in Treasuries and governments that what they're doing in the income support and the business support is trying to keep people uh, in a place for a future means they have to start taking a lead on the future. 
they are going to have to, as governments, uh, individually and uh, internationally, restructure the air industry. The Australians have decided that they don't need a competitor to Qantas. Uh, so Virgin Australia is gone. Australia has always managed to have two competing airlines over time. There was ANSA in the past. They're going to find they need a, a competitor. And actually, maybe a Chinese company, because uh, Fuson bought Thomas Cook, uh, the British uh, transport yeah. company, um, a Chinese company may come in and buy Virgin, uh, which, which will cause real questions. Do you want competition in your air industry? Or do you want the Chinese in your country? A whole set of these things. They require the strategic thinking of the cleverest people. So, so, so a sectoral uh, analysis. And I think the third thing, um, local, local, local. Um, if central governments are driving an economic recovery strategy, then you need to give to cities and regions and local government the discretion, the power, the backing to sort out a whole load of other issues about access to labor, about access to skills, about... So basically, you have a big division, which is we'll go for growth, you sort out lots of the social and community issues, and we'll give you the power to do it. And I think that will play back into the point that Marx has, has, has made previously, that by spending so much time in our local communities, there is a revived interest in a kind of slow politics, which is what is it that would make my area better? And so that that and the role of local uh, governments in tackling and working with health services and care services, attacking this ha has been a very important uh, and under focused on one. But that new place that they have, that new respect they have, could be complemented by new powers. So you could end up actually with, if we get the progressive vision for this right. You could end up with a pro-internationalist, international supply chains, UN, the WTO reformed, uh, and so on, and devolution to local uh, communities to make their own decisions. And if I look yeah. at the United States, Trump might be struggling yeah. in the polls, but um, you know, New York yeah. Governor Andrew Cuomo is actually facing unprecedented yep. popularity with the highest death rate because he's engaging with what's really happening. They can see him. Uh, he's, he's authentic. He's honest. He's he's engaged with the problem, and that and that could be really positive. It's up to it. it really is up to to progressive yep. people to start making the case that that actually a good internationalist vision allows you to have have um, devolution to the local lowest level of local community um, power. That's really positive. Yeah. Well, I think I think that in a funny kind of way, I I. I, I global crisis uh, could lead to um, a renewed and better form of globalization, but also may have deep, 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 I mean, hyper-localism hyper may also be a product of this. Um, and that would, that would be uh, a good thing to come out of a very bad thing. And that was political commentator and strategist John McTernan and YouGov's Marcus Roberts from the UK. So the culture wars haven't gone away, they've just got a new storyline. And the jury's out on whether we become hyper-local and embrace closed borders, even borders between states, or whether we reform globalisation. Maybe we'll do both. What's clear is government is back and so are experts. And the words, we're from government and we're here to help, don't send the libertarians running to the hills like it used to. But government on what terms? 
That's the question, because it's also true that everything in politics has changed and nothing has changed. Join me, Josie Bagani, for another podcast on politics post-COVID. And until then, keep washing your hands. Mm-hmm.